when Phil asked me to speak, gosh, it was almost like two months ago, um, this Sunday, obviously I said yes, um, but I was really excited because I had been working on a sermon uh, based on an Old Testament text, and I had been working on it and kind of developing that sermon for a little while, and then that following Sunday, our scripture reading was in First Peter, I believe chapter 2, and in the midst of, of finishing our reading uh, for that morning, my eyes glanced at chapter 1, and verse 13 popped out at me, and it was without a doubt in my mind that that was a verse that I was going to speak on. Uh, God really pressed it upon my heart um, to speak on that verse, this verse today. Even though I had told God that I already had something prepped, and it'd be much easier for me to go ahead and go with that, uh, he still pressed it upon my heart for this verse to be spoken today. <clears throat> so, um, but as the point of me bringing that up is that the last two weeks that Phil has been speaking, it can almost be as a little sermon series between today's message and the last two, and the things he's spoken about. Um, so it's almost like God knows what he's doing, huh? And uh, <clears throat> so our text is in 1 Peter 1.13. But before we begin to examine verse 13, it is vital that we... Uh, read the previous 12 verses, um, just to give us a little bit of a context of where we're at in verse 13. So um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, pray, and then we'll begin diving into the Word of God. Starting verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you loved him. Though you do not know, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what persons or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. And now comes our text. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we, we humbly come before you, God, seeking wisdom, seeking to know you more. Lord, uh, meet us here today. God, may your spirit move. May it prepare the minds and hearts for your word. Lord, if I was up here speaking eloquent speech, Lord, it would matter not if your spirit is not here. So, Lord, uh, may it be your words that are preached, that are spoken. May it convict where needs conviction. May it edify. May it encourage. May it build up your body. May it exalt your son and bring you glory, Lord. I pray that your word is purely, faithfully preached and proclaimed. And, Lord, I thank you for this undeserved privilege to stand before your saints, Lord, and proclaim your truth. We love you. We ask this in the name of Christ for his glory. Amen. <clears throat> so, let me get a drink of water. <clears throat> Our text starts with the word, therefore. Um, whenever we're studying the word of God and we come to this word, therefore, we have to understand that it is a conclusive thought or answer to the uh, previous verses before it. Uh, that's why it was so vital for us to look at verses 1 through 12 to help us understand the context and the thought behind verse 13. As it is said, we have to understand what the therefore is there for. So let us look back at what Peter has stated so far, thus far, in verses 1 through 12. Um, first and foremost, the epistle is designed to encourage and to prepare uh, the recipients of this letter, for whatever hardships may come. He speaks of being born again to a living hope. A living hope that is in Christ. He speaks of a, a great inheritance that is incorruptible, imperishable, that is protected by the power of God himself. <clears throat> hope, as we read in our text this morning, is a central theme of Peter's epistle. It is said that if Paul the apostle of faith, John the apostle of love, then Peter would be the apostle of hope. The previous verses stress the privileges we have in Christ. From 13 on into chapter 2, the stress is on the responsibility, or more accurately, the response of the believers. Peter has much to say, has had much to say about hope about a future. Uh, proceeding to therefore, Peter has said about our future hope, our future inheritance, and a salvation that is revealed at a future revelation of Jesus Christ. After the therefore, it is revealed that there are practical applications that should be for the response of the believer presently in light of these future hopes, which leads us to the next part of our text. Prepare your minds for action. So Peter said, so thus far, with all that in mind, with the inheritance that you have, with the um, incorruptible, imperishable treasures that you have in Christ that is protected by God, with all these things in mind, thus far, with that in mind, prepare your minds for action. Prepare. <clears throat> Translate from the original language means to gird up. To gird up one's loins. Um, it was... In Peter's day where men wore robes, 
And we say, I say robes, it's practically a dress, is what they wore. And whenever strenuous activity was required, the men would have to grab hold of their loins, gird up their loins, wrap it up in their little rope belt that they would have. Um, ladies, I'm sure you can, you can empathize here. Um, I know whenever I've asked a woman or anyone, I've heard someone ask a woman who's in a dress there was, to do anything strenuous, the response is, I'm in a dress. You know, head all cocked back and looking at you like you're stupid for posing such a question. It was a, it is a meaning to be prepared, to be equipped, to be ready. It is, the idea here it has to do with self-discipline and self-control. The Christian life is a life full and is characterized by self-discipline. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, but work out. You can't work out what you don't already have. He says, work out. Anyone who's ever desired to be more fit or healthy and, and work out and every year has a New Year's resolution to do that more and more, and they never follow through with it, myself. Um, we know that it takes a lot of self-discipline, self-control. Anyone been on a diet lately? A lot of self-discipline, a lot of self-control, a lot of self-denial. This is what the Christian life is characterized by. It is what our lives are to be characterized by. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Paul says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in an imperishable. Talking about that inheritance. Later in verse 27, he says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. It is something that we are to engage in on a daily basis. As our Lord says, take up your cross and follow me daily. A daily denial of self, a daily dying to self. It is a daily habit because every day we are tempted to fulfill our desires, our own lives comfortably for ourselves, which we'll get into a little bit more in a bit. So what are we to prepare? What are we to gird up? What are we to equip our minds for action? The battle between the flesh and the spirit always begins in the mind. Romans 7, 23, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The fall of Genesis 3 began with the serpent planting an idea in the mind of the woman. And once the idea was planted in the mind, it grew into a desire of the heart. And once a desire, as James 1, 15 says, has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The battle is for your mind. Peter says, prepare your minds. Mind here means thought, our disposition. And I wasn't going to explain disposition, but I, I thought to myself, oh, people know what disposition means, and I tried to explain it myself, and I was like, I have no idea what disposition means. So the definition of disposition is a habit. Preparation, a state of readiness, and or tendency to act in a specific way. The preparation of the mind is essential to righteous living. It is why Paul tells the Romans to 
not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Looking at that verse, not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is worth noting here that the verb conform here means to take on an outward shape of something. And what's interesting is that when Paul says, don't be conformed by the image of, don't be conformed by this world, he doesn't say be conformed rather to Christ. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't look like the world, look like Christ. He says, don't look like the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. <clears throat> the thought is instead of be conformed to the image of, uh, I'm sorry, the thought is, the reason is, a renewed mind results in renewed action. What happens internally will manifest itself externally. The Christian life is to be lived. The next part of our, our uh, small snippet of the text here, the minds for action. The Christian life is to be lived. This is not a call just to gain more knowledge. This is not a, a call to memorize more verses. This is not a call just to acquire more information. This is a call to, to prepare your minds to live it out in action. And I've met in my day many a men with a vast knowledge of the Word of God. I have even met men who have acquired uh, education through seminary, who have been through seminary. They accumulate knowledge but do not train or prepare their minds to act on that knowledge to be doers of the word of God instead of hearers alone. And how does one go about training their minds? How does one go about renewing, refreshing their minds? It's by emptying it of the things of this world and filling it with the very word of God. Peter is saying, gird up, prepare your minds to be in a state of readiness, a state of preparation. In this case, specifically with regard to the coming of Christ to institute habits that will cultivate into a tendency. This is a call for us today, ladies and gentlemen, that live in a culture that desires shorter sermons, more entertainment rather than deeper teaching and understanding. It is a call for deeper understanding of our future hope in Christ. To prepare oneself mentally is to be ready in one's spiritual and mental attitude. To be, as the next part of the verse states, sober-minded. The phrase being of sober mind, being sober-minded, yes, it denotes an absence from wine, an abstinence from drunkenness, but um, in the New Testament, it came to be, um, have a broader sense than just drunkenness. One reference in the New Testament uh, its text is usually in reference to eschatology, the end times, as it is here. It is a call to be on alert, to be in ready in reference to the Lord's coming. The imagery could be that of a um, guard lookout on a tower, to be ready, to be alert. And I will say this, though. It doesn't, just because it doesn't specifically mean drunkenness, that doesn't mean it doesn't apply here. Uh, one cannot be self-controlled and exhibit clarity of mind and alertness if they are intoxicated. 
So I just want to just add that as a little side note, um, just for people to say, oh, that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean drunkenness there. Um, it is definitely implied. There is this idea here of expectation, idea of a coming, of a coming hope according to the second half of this verse. This expectation, as Peter says, should characterize our lives. Should be the focal point of our minds and manifest itself in our actions. We have looked at the instructions of the first part of our text. Now time to look at the exhortation. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Faith and hope. If you had to describe hope, how would you describe it? Hope and faith are synonymous. Uh, I love what MacArthur says about hope. He says, hope is the same substance of faith. Faith is believing God in the present, and hope is believing God for the future. Faith believes in what God has done, and hope believing in what God will do. Faith accepts, hope expects. Hope is a Christian attitude toward the future. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the faith and hope that is in you. A text that is commonly used in apologetics, and no, I believe it does have its context there. What Peter's saying is more than just, you know, be ready to, to have an answer for the atheist. He's saying more than that. He's saying that the believer should know what this hope is that awaits them and why they have such faith in it. Hope is what should characterize the believer. The meaning of hope here is a combination of desire and expectancy and suggests a waiting with a joyful anticipation. I'm going to say that again. It suggests a waiting with a joyful expectation and anticipation. Fully here means an unwavering, strong, wholeheartedly kind of hope. When I think of the heroes of the faith, these are the attributes that I believe characterize many of them. Men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale, who strongly endured through much persecution to the point of being burned alive at a stake and strangled so that you and I can have a Bible in a language which we can read. <clears throat> Men like John Huss, who boldly stood opposed the heresies of the Catholic Church to the point of being burned at the stake as well. Men like Luther, who was hunted because he was unwavering about the doctrine of faith alone. The unwavering of the missionaries of the 1800s that would travel to Africa, who would literally pack their belongings into coffins because they knew that the chance of them coming back was very slim. C.S. Lewis said of hope, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. 
It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. And if you were to read, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. End quote. What a countercultural message this is that the world offers us is as a big billboard outside my work states made by Pepsi, live for the now. Live for the now. What I want us to see and not miss is the object and focus that we're to fully cast our hope upon. It's interesting when we talk about the end times, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about when we die, usually the the focus is on the perfected bodies we'll have. The golden streets and huge mansions. Peter doesn't say to talk to focus on that. He doesn't say, think about there, don't worry, there will be no more tears, no more sorrow. You're going through a hard time now, but, but think about it. You won't have any tears and sorrows. The object is not even on the event itself. It doesn't say, look, when Christ comes, think about all, all that's going to happen, all that he's going to bring. And it's even worth noting, he doesn't even put the focus on Christ himself. Though I believe these are all byproducts and things we can look forward to, absolutely, but he says it is the grace that we are to put our focus on. It is the grace that is ours at Christ's revelation. Why is Peter telling us to focus on the grace? Because as we will see when we study in Ephesians 2 in two years, it is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Now I want us to understand something. God didn't have to save us in order to glorify himself. His glory was not dependent upon saving us. God would have been glorified in giving us the just wrath that we deserved. Everyone says that, oh, God saved us because, you know, you know, he needed to be glorified through our salvation. He would have been glorified through our damnation as well as our salvation. Just as a judge passes righteous judgment on those who are guilty, is glorified as a just judge. His glory was not dependent upon our salvation. But we receive it nonetheless, his grace. Instead of the due wrath, we get unmerited mercy. Instead of eternal death, we get eternal life. Instead of hell, we get heaven. These are all great. These are worth praise. But the ultimate thing that God's grace provides through the coming of his son, taking upon himself our sins and dying on the cross, paying the debt that we deserve to pay and raising us again into a new life, the ultimate thing that that accomplishes, that grace accomplishes, is reconciliation. 
The very thing it accomplished and gains for us is the very thing that was lost with the first sin. Reconciliation with the Father. That reconciliation that is ours through faith in Christ, that reconciliation, beloved, that is our great inheritance. That is the hope we look forward to. That great inheritance of the Father, that reconciliation of the Father. It is what we place our hope in. God alone, as the psalmist says, is our inheritance, which will be brought about at the coming revelation of Jesus Christ because of the grace. Amen. This great inheritance is all possible by that grace and is why Peter emphasizes to find your hope in that grace that will be ours at Christ's revelation. We just got done singing a song about amazing grace. But how often are we actually amazed by it? How often do we let ourselves really be amazed by that grace? Now comes a question. Do you do that? Do I do that? I want to do a little self-examination real quick. Hypothetically, and I know this runs contrary to Scripture, but bear with me. Hypothetically, what if you knew the coming of Christ, this revelation, this coming of Christ would return in exactly one month from today? August 19th, at 12 o'clock, Jesus would come. I'm not saying that, so don't go all crazy. And... <laughs> but what if we knew? <clears throat> what if you knew one month Jesus would return? Would that impact your lives for the next 30 days a little differently? How about your prayer life? You think your prayer life would, would increase this a little bit? How about God's word? Don't you think it would be opening it up just a little bit more? Suddenly those, those things that we have to do, those, those television shows that we can't miss, seem a little less important, wouldn't they? <clears throat> How about our giving? Would we cling to our resources? Or would we relent all that we have for the furthering of the kingdom within that month span. I know our conduct would certainly change. How about our evangelism? In that month span, would you not try to change and, and route every conversation that you had to share the gospel? Would you not grab hold of your loved ones, co-workers, family, friends, and plead with them if they did not know Christ to come to a saving knowledge, to submit and surrender their lives to Christ? <clears throat> what if it wasn't one month? What if it was two months? What if it was six months? What if six months 
And you knew that Christ was going to return, absolutely, in six months from today. <clears throat> what if it was a whole year? Just give it a whole year. We knew exactly one year. Would that change anything in which I just stated? Would those things not still apply and be applicable to, to our actions in that, this next coming year? The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. And one thing I always noticed about brides is that they're excited for the day of the wedding. Not to say that the men are not. I think the brides are just a little more exciting. Um, there is an expectation that the brides have. There is a, uh, a hope. And oh man, have they marketed weddings. They got books to show you the etiquette of every little thing. How much you should pay for this, who should pay for that, what so-and-so should wear. And all these, there's, there's so much preparation, there's so much excitement that the brides have. Um, but the one thing I, I've always noticed is that every passing day, a bride grows more and more excited, a little more prepared, a little more ready and equipped. It seems to be the exact opposite, though, with us. The language that Peter uses here of the revelation of Christ refers to it as something that is so assured that you can consider it done. It doesn't matter whether it is one month or one year, 100 years. How does the timeline change what our response to this truth should be? How should it and how it should govern and how we conduct our lives? We seem to think because it's not a, we, probably not going to come in a month or a year that these things don't apply, that we don't have to act this way. But, but just as a bride, it grows more ready, more excited, more prepared for that coming day where she meets her groom at the altar. So should we. But it seems like the more days that pass, we grow a little bit more numb a little bit less excited, a little bit less ready, a little bit less prepared. And here's the sad truth. The reason for that is that the coming of Christ may, be, may seem to some of you as an inconvenience. Not, not me. I can't wait for the day of Christ. I can't wait to be in heaven I want Christ to return. But on the one hand, I, I do someday want to meet Mr. Ride or Mrs. Ride and get married one day. I can't wait for Christ to return, but I do want to start a family one day. I would, I would like that. I want Christ to return, but man, retirement's coming up and I got some plans. I want Christ to return, but I do want to see my children grow up.
all seems so innocent, I grant you. I want you to be honest with yourself right now. Think about what brings you joy. Think about what brings you satisfaction in this life. Are they connected with and belong to this world? Because the fact of the matter is we have lost the hope of that that grace provides. And we may not think so, but the fact of the matter is how else do you explain the fact that around 25% of Christians here in America read their Bible on a regular basis, and regular meaning at least five days a week. Not study, read. How do you also explain the fact that only about 10% of the church actually serves? How do you explain the fact that only about 4% of the church faithfully tithe? 4%. Well, these are numbers, give or take, but either way, they're sad. How else can you explain it other than that we have put our hope in the things of this life? How did we get so far off base? How did we lose our focus? During World War II, the Nazis had within their midst somewhat of a, a secret weapon. And it came in the form of a man by the name of Hans Scarf. I kept trying to say Scarf to make it sound more German, but I, I looked it up. It's pronounced Scarf. So, <clears throat> Hans Scarf was an interrogator for the Nazis, one of the best. It was said that he had a 90% success rate in interrogating. 90%. success rate when it came to getting POWs to talk. The interesting thing about Scarf was not necessarily his success rate, though, but his means of obtaining that success. You see, when we think of an interrogator, we normally think of someone torture. Or, or uh, threats. <clears throat> but with Scarf, the means were the exact opposite. An interrogation session with Scarf would conduct of a pleasant meal would conduct of uh, walks around a national forest, a stroll in the local zoo, and in one occasion, a, a ride in one of the German fighter pilots' plane. <clears throat> After the war, Scarf was invited by the United States Air Force to give lectures on his interrogation. So impress, uh, impressive were his methods that us, his enemy, invited him to come and lecture us. The U.S. military later incorporated Scarf's methods into his curriculum at his interrogation schools. When Peter wrote this epistle, who was he writing to? 
He was writing to believers who were facing persecutions from all directions. They experienced what, what this world truly has to offer. And in the midst of all their trials, Peter reminds them where their true hope lay. In the grace that would be revealed to them at the revelation of Christ. Peter tells them to hope fully in that. And if they are focused fully on that grace of theirs that was theirs in Christ, that hope can never be taken away. With that, they were able to endure anything. And how were they able to do this? By preparing their minds for it. Of what it would cost. Of what they may lose. You know, when someone's being interrogated and being tortured and, and um, facing hardships such as that, they're reminded with every torture of why they're there. They're reminded the reason behind it. They're reminded of why they are there. Now, our enemy is not omnipotent, but he is clever. Under God's sovereignty, of course, the first time he persecuted the church, he did so with uh, great turmoil and persecution, violence. But not only did this not stop the church, it flourished. And it spread. And it furthered it. So, tactics change. Now, instead of persecution and turmoil, we have been flooded with just the opposite, ease and comfort. You see, what Hans Scarf understood was that if you can get your enemy's mind off of the war, if you could get his mind off the reason why he was there in the first place, he would naturally let down his guard and give in without even knowing it. And he found the means to do this by making them comfortable. Giving them the comfort. And in that comfort, they let their guards down, not sober, not alert, and opened up, giving the enemy exactly what he wanted. Peter says in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Are you living a life now in light of that future hope of tomorrow? Are you living out the faith of the hope that is inside of you? Are you living out your life in a way that fixes all your hope fully on that coming grace and future inheritance? Or have we gotten comfortable? If I were up here today talking about missions and giving of your life, how many of you would dismiss it as, well, that's not me, I'm not a missionary? I was up here talking about evangelistic efforts for our community. How many would you say, that's not me, that's not my gift? 
See, we are, we are willing to do, live our faith as long as it does not interfere with our comfort and ease. Let me ask you, when you come to the throne of God, asking for forgiveness, repenting of sin, what is it most common that you're repenting of? Because I'm willing to guess, because I know myself, you're repenting of negligence, of the word of God, of prayer, of the things of God. We feel that, that guilt of having spent three hours watching TV, but only five minutes in the Bible. How we can talk passionately about our hobbies and the things of our life that we enjoy, but when it comes to the gospel, we're really quiet. What is it that you are convicted of? What is it you're being convicted of now? We have indeed become lazy and comfortable with this world and the things in it. And believe me, I'm speaking to myself. We have so readily traded in the joy of this great inheritance that's brought about by grace for the soup of this world that will not satisfy. <clears throat> now what? What are we to do now? What is the application? To walk away from this with a do-more attitude, a try-harder, which is our humanistic default, would be to miss the point of this entire message, the message that Peter has for these believers and for us today. If you remember back in verse 3 of this chapter, Peter says that believers have been born into a living hope. He says, believers, you have been born to a living hope. And then here he commands us to hope. This is not contradictory. The writing here resembles that of Paul when he wrote it in Colossians 2.20, you have died with Christ, and then in Colossians 3.5, but put to death. The idea and point behind this type of writing is simply this, be who you are. And when I say that, means realize what God has made possible for you by his grace. You've been bought and born into this living hope. Now realign your focus on that and live accordingly. Live accordingly to what you already are. You are about to get a chance to do that when we take communion. As we break off to take communion, and as you take the elements, be reminded, be refreshed by the grace that those elements represent and what it means for you. And let us not seek the comforts of this world. Let us be reminded of the grace in which has purchased us. Let us be reminded of who we already are in Christ and act accordingly.
Examine yourself. Prepare your minds for action. I have geared this message for believers, but if you are here today and you do not know Christ, you don't know of that grace in which was spoken about today, then I love you too much not to say that you have no hope to look forward to. That hope cannot be found outside those doors in a world full of fallen men and empty promises. That hope will not be found in your good deeds. It cannot be obtained by your piousness and that cannot be bought or bargained or earned. If you have not confessed and repented of your sins before God, if you have not cried out to Christ and pleaded for forgiveness by the washing of his blood, then you do not have that everlasting hope. The only thing that awaits for you is an eternal hell. That according to a famous 14th century poem, that all ye who enter abandon hope. Don't walk out those doors without knowing that hope. Don't walk out those doors questioning, not knowing 